Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. All right, welcome back to part two of our interview with Lisa Smith on addiction and anxiety. For those of you who missed part one, uh, I recommend you go back and listen to that. It is captivating, it is frightening and inspiring at the same time. In part two, we'll be talking more about addiction in the legal profession. There'll be more personal stories, but we'll also get a little bit more into practices and strategies for overcoming addiction. So now, back to the interview. After I emailed work, I called my parents, and I told my parents, like, sit down, I have some news. You know, and my mother... You actually said sit down. (laughs) To my mother, yeah. It was early. It was early in the morning, and, uh, you know, I knew my mother would be having her coffee and looking at the birds out the window and doing her thing, and I was about to, like, drop something on her. And I actually said, I think you need to sit down. And she was, okay, what's going on? And then I said, you know, I'm having a problem. I didn't talk about the cocaine at first. I said, I'm having a problem with alcohol, and I'm going to... Um, check myself into a place to get treatment. And, you know, the, her reaction was like, you know, I think they're numb at that point. She, she was not expecting that. And, you know, why would anyone think I was failing? I had this great job, great apartment, great friends. You know, everything was going great as far as the naked eye could see. You know, she said, do you really need to be hospitalized? I know you drink too much sometimes, but do you really need to be Can't hospitalized? Can't you just cut back? Can't you just cut back? Can't you just stop for a while? And the answer was, no, I can't stop. And, you know, my dad was the best. My dad was an incredible guy. And he, Your dad was a former judge. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, he was a wonderful guy and just said to me, okay, we got a problem. We'll, we'll take care of it. We'll, we'll fix it. It's okay. And, you know, that was really what I needed. And from <laughs> both of them, there was no... You know, they were willing to jump right in. And then I called my good friends, my what we referred to each other as our urban tribe, um, which was a term young professional people the, no who were Jewish single. No Jewish context there? No, <laughs> no. It was a mix. And um, they, but they were, we were all kind of making our way in New York. You know, we had started together as baby lawyers, baby bankers, all of that. And... Um, did a lot of traveling together and just had, you know, you pick me up from the dentist after I've had Novocaine, you know, after I've, you know, had anesthesia or whatever it is. And uh, I let them know and they were really surprised. And they left my work. friend was like, everybody just left work on a Monday morning and came over, drank the rest of the booze in the apartment. Here you are struggling with your, yeah. your addiction. You're finally admitting it. You're, you're finally taking steps and they come over and yeah. pour themselves a glass of wine. Oh, yeah. They needed a drink. And I have any of these friends back. followed you into recovery? No, but they didn't drink and use the way I did. They weren't, you know, like me. They, they, we all love to go out. We all love to hang out and party and do that. And we did that for many years. And then they grew out of it. You they know, had that more happens. Of an off switch. Oh, they certainly had more of an off switch. And you know, while I continued into my 30s to be living alone and, you know, there was some got married and then they start a family and then, you know, the environmental circumstances change. So here you are surrounded by some close friends, your building friend, mm-hmm. and 
What was the next step? They took me that night to the hospital. So I eventually took where, it. Where was it? The hospital on the Upper East Side. And so we stayed, we spent the day at my place. We had Chinese, we ordered in Chinese food for lunch. And we talked all through all this stuff. Like what, because they, what was going on? They couldn't, they couldn't believe it. Well, they no, didn't see it. not the scope of it, you know. And I remember when we finally were going late to the, to the hospital, because I had taken a nap and then my friend Devin had packed me a bag. And, were um, you drinking at this point? Uh, yeah. But I knew I was about to not. And as we were walking out, you know, they were starting as I, as I certainly when I admitted to what was going on, that it was around the clock and that I was drinking in the mornings, I was using the mornings. That was, how could I not know? A lot of people had that reaction. Walking out the door to go get in, we took two taxis up there uh, from my apartment. And, you know, I remember saying to Russell, like, you need to check um, the boxes because they were going to clean up my apartment while I was gone. I was like, you need to check like the boxes in my closet because there may be some bags of cocaine in there. I'm not sure. And go into my sweaters on the top shelf and shake them all out. You were already preparing for, for well, recovery. Well, I had all these hiding places. And then when they were going to clean up while I was away so I could come back to a nice apartment, I figured I, I wanted them to know where to look. And I remember Russell looking at me at that point like, shake the sweaters out and see if a bag of drugs falls out. Because like you that. might have hidden them in yeah, the sweater? Yeah, would, I would stick it between sweaters, or, you know. So. Yeah, and that, that basically, the, those things that came out over the course of that day convinced them. So they were, you know, what, what they didn't. So by the time you got to the hospital, mm-hmm. your friends were caught up? Yes, they were caught up. And they stayed with me until I left. Until they had to leave, and I had to go back behind the closed doors. You checked yourself into a hospital on the Upper East Side, Gracie Square. This was, there were some surprises there. Yes. What did you discover once you got there? I discovered that uh, I would need to sign a 72-hour psych hold in order to be treated. So what does that mean? Are you giving up your rights for 72 hours? Pretty much. So that means lockdown unit. Um, no, no phone, no contact, one hour of visiting a day. You can't check yourself out. You can't check yourself out. You can write a letter to the, or a note to the psychiatrist on duty and request to be released say, and explain that, you know, you're, whatever reason that you need to be released. And if the psychiatrist deems you in shape to be released, you can be released. But You're a lawyer. Did you, did you sit down and check and discuss the, the, the bylaws, if you will, the, the restrictions I, at, at the time? At that, at that point, I had been, uh, I'd been drinking a good part of the day, and I was tired and anxious, and I just wanted to get it over with. So I, you know, he, the, the fellow who was the night director at the hospital explained everything to me. This is, we're legally required, if you sign this, you are here for 72 hours. We are legally required to hold you here. You can't, uh, you can't leave without permission from a psychiatrist. And, and this is a special, I assume, a special legal provision because... Sometimes keeping this period of time, it improves recovery rates. And I, well, I think it's really not necessarily specific to a detox. I think it is also for some any other kind of breakdown where it's, you're voluntarily checked in. You're saying, I need help. And, and basically, the agreement you're making is 
uh, I, you are going to provide me with that help, and I'm going to give you 72 hours to, to do it. I'm not going to try to to run out for 72 hours. And, and there may be a component of safety, of my own safety, of someone else's safety. If you are in a position where you're asking a psych hospital to please take you, it's, it seems strikes me as, a, as an okay idea to, to ask for a little time. So you got checked in, and uh, I guess how was the, the, first, the first part of the experience? How were you acclimated? I was warned ahead of time that I would be going up to a, a lockdown detox. It was a co-ed unit. There would be no locks on any of the doors because they would need to have access to the patients at all time. I would be sharing a room and a bathroom down a hall. And as I was hearing all of this, I was also being told that you know you may see things and hear things that you're not used to hearing. I think they don't necessarily get a lot of high-functioning lawyers checking themselves in on a Monday night. Some of these people have been arrested is how they ended up here. Well, yeah, it's frequently arrested or uh, picked up in the subway. It is people who are checked in frequently out of their own volition. And I knew it was going to be kind of bad, but there was something about the experience that I thought, I just have to get through this, I just have to get through this, otherwise I'm gonna lose my nerve and I'm not gonna do it. And then when we went up in this old elevator to the floor and you know, big metal doors open and then they like slam shut behind and we're on the unit and I saw, I'd never been on a lockdown unit before and uh, this one was, to my eyes, uh, pretty rough. And I said, that's it, I'm out. Let me out of here. And they said, no, we can't let you go. You're, we're legally obliged just to keep you away here. The next right. hours. And they said, you can write a note for the psychiatrist, but the psychiatrist isn't coming till tomorrow morning. So you're here. Did you pull a lawyer card? I did. I said, <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I know my rights. I had no idea what my <laughs> rights were. I had no, I really had no idea. Um, and they ended up, and I refused to take. I fully intended, I wrote the letter, I fully intended to, to leave the next morning when I saw what it was like. And then they put me, they decided to let me stay for the night on a floor that was a little calmer than the main detox floor. So um, I stayed there through the night and then in the morning they came and you know said they wanted to take blood. I wouldn't let them the night before take blood or, or start me on Librium, which is a drug given in order to uh, reduce the risk of having a seizure or um, because in, uh, in as that you sharp alcohol drop withdrawal. alcohol it can be actually dangerous very dangerous yeah I went there I fully expected to not let I wouldn't let them do it the night before and then I fully expected to not let them do it the next day but then when I got up that next morning and it had been you know about several hours since I had last had a drink and you I was didn't awake have that and glass I was of sick. wine next to your bed no and it was. It was the worst. It was really like I felt like my head had been slammed into a bed of nails. At that point, you know, the doctor came in and said to me, listen, I know you want to leave, and I know it was it was kind of rough down there last night, but people don't usually end up here by accident, so maybe you should think about staying, and we can keep you. You can stay up here. They had me in a single room outside the nurse's station, and I shared a bathroom, but I didn't have anybody in the room, and I said... At that point, I was so sick. I was like, 
just give me the Librium. Just give me the Librium. I'll, I'll, I'll stay. Fine. I'll stay. And then I figured, you know, if I can just get through this. And then once I started the Librium, it was, it was like I couldn't have moved if I wanted to because it really knocked it's me out. You. Yeah. You checked yourself in. You spent 72 hours. Five days, actually. You spent five days. So you yeah. stayed even longer than yeah. was required. Longer than was legally required, I stayed what, what the doctor recommended. They weaned me off the Librium. So, to, you know, so got, by this point, are you past withdrawal? Are you past the kind of dangerous point? Yes, you're pa- I was past the dangerous point five days later. Um, I still, my hands shook for months. It took months for the shaking to go away. Um, the trem- like the sweating, the night sweating and all that, that went on for a while, but then that stopped. And the, um, miraculously, my stomach felt a lot better. Are we being sarcastic? Yes, or? I was. Yeah, yeah, my <laughs> okay. stomach felt a lot better. So that's, I guess, for many people, that's step one. Uh, or I don't know if it's step one, but yeah. that's that's the first recovery, in a sense. Yes. While you are there, you started with a 12-step program? They introduced me to it. That was part of what, what I had to do, was go to the detox floor for 12-step. And I remember seeing this sign, I would see, I saw the 12-step signs on the wall and thought, oh, did I really, do I really have to, not that. And, but what I saw also on the wall in the detox uh, day room that stuck with me was, there was this whiteboard and they had written on it in green pen, I can picture it, it was like, get up, get dressed, get with the program. And I looked at that and I was like, I have not done that in 10 years. I don't even know can I do that? Maybe I can do that. You know, just the idea of getting up, getting dressed, and doing something productive was was pretty, you know, pretty revolutionary. Pre- yeah, it was, it was it was a revelation. Like I could try for that. That's a good goal. <laughs> you managed to make it stick, mm. which isn't always the case. No, uh, we talked about lawyers being statistically better at recovery, but. The first time? Very unusual and very unusual uh, for someone who does five days in, in a detox and goes right back to work, which I did. And the, there are a few reasons I think that was the case for me. One giant reason was that uh, as scary and, and uh, you know, awful as the detox hospital was, I have to give them all credit because that psychiatrist who met with me over the five days got my diagnosis right. He diagnosed me with major depressive disorder and put me on antidepressants immediately and said, you know, my, my, my feeling is that you've been self-medicating all your life or since you were a small child. And now you'll take antidepressants and you won't have to self-medicate. You won't feel that same need to self-medicate. And I've been very fortunate I, to get, one, the right diagnosis, and two, a medication that works yes. for you right out of the gate. That is really unusual. And I give that a huge piece of why I've been able to stay sober. The second is that I didn't lose everything. I didn't have to come back. I didn't wake up in jail and have to face a DUI where something awful happened. I didn't... You lose know, all your friends. And lose all my friends. Lose, lose my job, family. my apartment. You know, I had a soft landing to go back to. I had my job. I had my friends, my family, support. Um, I didn't have to face necessarily the kind of devastating consequences that a lot of people who just get sober face in the immediate aftermath. 
And finally, I think the third reason that uh, I've been as fortunate as I have 14 years later is that that day when I said, I need help, that day that I finally called Mark and said, I need help, will you help me? That was my decision. I felt at that point defeated. I felt good and truly done. I didn't want it. Uh, to be living like that anymore. I wanted something to change, and I did it. You know, it was my call, and I wasn't in 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 detox or in treatment because my employer made me go, or because I got arrested, or because my family forced me in. I went. You know, there's there's something people say about it took you know every last drink to get you sober, and <laughs> I think I needed every last drink before I was ready to. I feel like I was ready get sober at that point. I think one, one thing that our audience um, is, would, will be interested in is how your professional life changed. Mm-hmm. After you came out, were you immediately upfront with your, no. your employer or your colleagues? I wasn't at all. Mm-mm. So you, you, you saw it as a personal concern that they didn't need to know about. Right, right. I saw it as, as a personal concern. I feared stigma. Um, and that is one of the things that I'm, I'm really pleased to see the profession working on, on breaking is that stigma around addiction and mental health issues. And, you know, there is, it's also, it's a very delicate time. It's a, you're very fragile in early recovery. What if I drank? What if I went in and told them, hey, I got sober last week, I, you know, but I'm good now. And then I drank. I didn't know what was going to happen from one day to the next. Every day that I would wake up and go, I haven't had a drink in six days. It was a miracle. I didn't know how long that would last. You don't, I, I didn't want the pressure of, of that. Plus, you know, stigma was a huge thing for me. I was afraid, you know, rightly or wrongly, I was afraid of how people would think about me, even though, you know, I was, I was well-respected and doing well in the office. I didn't even tell my friends in the office. I just really didn't want anybody outside my tight circle to know. Um, and I would be very open with family and friends and, you know, tangential people who are related. And I wasn't hiding it in my private life at all. And I was going to an outpatient rehab two nights a week. That was the compromise. They had wanted me to go for at least 30 days, if not longer, to a long-term rehab inpatient. Which is a, a standard procedure. Yes, and I would recommend that anybody who has that opportunity take it. But I didn't because I wanted to go back to work. And, um, you know, I, I agreed to go to two nights a week in intensive outpatient rehab instead. And all of a sudden I realized I had found my people. I, I, could, I had a group of people who I had nothing in common with other than our brains functioned the same way <laughs> in certain respects. And I wasn't hesitant at all about talking about any of that, about being in rehab at night and whatever to, to whoever came along in my personal life. But I, I didn't, and I never said anything. Ten months as I mentioned earlier, 10 months after I got sober, when I went back to the firm, was when I got that phone call about a bigger job that someone had recommended me for at a different firm. And, you know, I went to even return the call before I was sober. Um, but this time I went, maybe So at I your can... old firm, no one ever knew? You, not you, until the book. Not until the book came out. <laughs> yeah. At what point did you feel comfortable sharing with colleagues, I'm sober? I'm, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Or what's the right term? I'm... Yeah, I'm in recovery. Okay. At, at what point did you feel comfortable sharing with your colleagues that you're in recovery? I really didn't start talking 
openly about it to everybody, all of my colleagues, until I was going to start being published because I was writing some articles in advance of the book coming out. There were people, there were many people in the firm with whom, you know, I switched firms after 10 months, and I'm still at the same firm I switched to at that point, and it's been 14 years now. But over those 10 years that I was sober, newly sober, you know, less than a year sober and at the firm, I didn't share it with people unless I had formed a friendship with them. And then if, and I formed friendships with a lot of people. So a lot of people knew, you know, I'm in recovery. It's, I'll, you know, people learned um, if they that. ask, why aren't you drinking with dinner? Or what, you know, why, right, why you meet right. Me? Or what did you do this weekend? You know, sometimes I, because I and I became proud of it. I would say, you know, I do this. Uh, I, I'm I'm in recovery, and I take a recovery meeting to an inpatient hospital uh, once a month to speak to people in detox. And I was so proud you, of it. you had immediately started yeah. from sharing your story, or not immediately, but soon after. Once, once I had formed those bonds, yeah, within, within a couple years of being at, at the new firm I did, with the people I was friendly with. All right, quick break for our CLE, MCLE listeners. The code for this interview for attorneys earning continuing education credit is 080719. That's 080719. And now back to the interview. You were able to recover, and that you can't help but feel a lot of empathy and pride mm-hmm. as you're reading the book for the, <laughs> the success that, that, that you were able to achieve. Now you advise people on this topic. You speak on this topic. What, what works to help, uh, help others down a path towards recovery? I think the biggest thing that we need to do is to really smash the stigma that is around talking about these issues. And I I fear that the stigma keeps people who might otherwise seek out help and who certainly need help from going to get it. Might help uh, others have a higher bottom. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think um, I would like people to get out of my book is that maybe if you identify, because I go way back to when I was a little kid, maybe somebody identifies, you know, some piece of it and sees kind of, they don't have to go as far down the road as I did (laughs) to say, wait, maybe I might want to think about this. You know, gee, why am I drinking a third glass of wine every night? Why has that turned into about a bottle a night? Wow, am I making excuses the way she made excuses? (laughs) You know, those kinds of things. Am I scheduling meetings for the purpose of drinking? Right, right. And so, so, you know, I, I hope that, I hope that, that can help. But Further to the study, in 2017, after the study, the American Bar Association put together a task force on this issue, and they issued a report in July of 2017 called The the Path to Lawyer Wellbeing, and it lays out what the profession needs to do for lawyers and law students, a big, huge issue for law students as well. And front and center, number one thing is we have to break the stigma around these issues. We have to talk about this so that people feel comfortable reaching out for the help that they need. And that, I think, is is the most important thing we can do. And that's really where I hope I can fit in in talking about those things. And, you know, the more people speak up, 
the better. And I, I don't, I've noticed now since that time, since the report and then since the task force recommendations, there's been an increase in public, in people going public with their story. There was a very high profile partner at a New York law firm who wrote a, a major piece for the National Law Journal. Who kept his job, who's still president. Oh yes, who wrote, you know, I am a partner at my firm. I suffer from depression and I'm not gonna be quiet about it. And it was not only a compelling story of a high profile partner at a high profile firm writing down his story of depression and how he addresses it, but it was also the chair, the head of that firm endorsing him and saying, this is important, we want this story out. And the American lawyer recently did a, an interview with the chair of Morgan Lewis in Philadelphia about his struggle with alcoholism and his long-term recovery. You weren't seeing those stories in the American Lawyer and the New York Law Journal before. And this is a very successful lawyer. These are people at, at the top of their games. They're not, you know, they they have overcome while in the profession, continued to stay in recovery while at the heights of their firms. So the more of that that happens, and there was actually an article out in, I think it was in July or August of 2018, talking about the fact that, wow, more people now are talking about the uh, issues of substance abuse and, and mental health among lawyers. And they are. I've been really fortunate. I've been to so many firms now going in and able to talk about it. And I think it helps when people, to break the stigma, when people say, you know, that's somebody who I can identify with on, on a certain level. And you know, it is not, you are not alone is, is the big thing that I think people, people need to know. A big part of the problem or a big part of the solution is reducing stigma, making yes. more, making lawyers not have to hide as much yes. to be able to ask for help without it, it ending their career or shifting them Absolutely. off the partnership track. Absolutely. And not feeling that feeling of, I'm going to get this under control. I'm going to get this under control. They can't find out, so I'm going to get this under control. Because that doesn't really end well. Right. You know, I've been fortunate that for me, you know, I was able to sort of catch myself at the last minute. But that day could have been the day that I got busted for drugs in the office. You know, it could have, who knows. So, you know, if you feel like it's okay to say, hey, I'm struggling with this and I want to get some help, I'm going to, you know, I've seen people go out for, they break their leg, they're out for however long, they have a surgery. You have a child, and at, at my firm, attorneys are out for six months, and that's great. I had never seen a lawyer go out for a mental health or substance abuse problem before, and I wasn't gonna be the first one to do I it. I like that analogy. So maybe you can compare it to one of these other major life Absolutely. events. And say, look, if I can take time out, yeah. To, to have a child, maybe I should be able to take time out to get my head right. Absolutely, uh, no question. And the fact in breaking the stigma, part of it is that, you know, according to the U.S. Surgeon General's office, these are brain diseases. They are diseases of the brain. In my case, you know, very much helped by medication, by treatment. I still take medication. I still talk to a therapist. If I had a heart problem, I'd go to a cardiologist. And if I you know, had a back problem, I'd go to an, an orthopedic 
doctor, if I've got a disease of the brain, I need to be going to someone who specializes in, in treating that condition. How about the prevalence of alcohol? We talked about firms being pretty alcohol forward, mm -hmm. at least in social events. Yeah. Do you feel like that's something that needs to change? Yes, and I think it actually is beginning to change. I think there, as we become more and more aware of these issues, I think that contributes to it. Um, I think the Me Too movement is a big contributor because when, if you look at when, when a lot of really inappropriate, inappropriate instances happen, you know, uh, there, there could very well be alcohol involved. So that is something that firms are looking at. And, you know, it's a risk management issue for firms. And, you know, I think looking at it that way as do we really want to be, do, do we need to, we've had this great dinner for everybody, do we need to now sponsor drinks in the bar until midnight? You know, maybe that there, and I've heard some firms taking different steps, trying to plan events like escape the room and, and other things that don't involve alcohol. Uh, one firm mentioned that they were giving attorneys for their functions to drink tickets, and after your second ticket, you were done. It's on your own. Or you're done, you're done. at the event. They were keeping the, they were asking the attorneys to respect the two-drink limit at, at, a, at an event. So firms are doing, and I try to encourage this kind of thing, having been in business development for a long time. Now, when, when, a, when there's a signature cocktail at an event, there can be a signature mocktail. And what amazes me is how many people go for the mocktail. <laughs> because being a recovering alcoholic, I think, of course you're going to drink. There's cocktails. Who wouldn't drink? Well, you know, maybe they're training for a race. Maybe they're going to go home and do homework with their kids after this. Maybe they're going back to the office to work. Maybe they're going back to the office. And you know what? Maybe they don't want to drink on a Tuesday night. You know, it, all these things, um, I think, are, are, I think it's less of a old boys club where you're expected to be out in the bar. And I think this next generation of lawyers has very little interest in doing that anyway. Along the lines of the, the mocktail mm -hmm. idea, in our conversation with Brian Cuban, yeah. um, he, he, he brought that home in the sense that you walk into a room, I think he was talking about a Texas bar event, but mm -hmm. it, it translates. There's so much money invested in having high-end alcohol, and if you want a non-alcoholic oh beverage, a lukewarm yeah, liter of Diet, Diet Coke. Coke. Yeah. So, yeah. So you know, in that level, it just seems reasonable. Yeah. You know, if I'm a if I'm a, a logical lawyer, yeah. why don't I take advantage of this fine scotch? Right. It certainly looks more appetizing than the, That's the Diet right. Coke. That's right. Whereas maybe if it was a delicious non-alcoholic right. beverage, it would be more Yeah, appealing. and and you know, at a client event where you have clients and they feel comfortable, you know, maybe they it's just it gives them they're engaged in the thing of the night without having to drink alcohol. A lot of them make that choice. But we were never offering that before. <laughs> it's true. Reducing stigma, being conscious mm -hmm. of events mm -hmm. and the role that alcohol plays. Yeah. Anything else that yeah? Well, you've I think seen? the next the next thing um, is going to be in August of 2018. There was a toolkit uh, put out by the American Bar Association, someone they were working with, on 
developing lawyer well-being, sort of a toolkit for, for legal employers to promote well-being among lawyers in firms. And that more goes broadly. more broadly. So that encompasses the, the alcohol issue, but it also encompasses things like a lot of firms are having yoga you know, in the office and, you know, kind of doing those things around stress management that, you know, helping to Because the job is stressful. The job is stressful, yeah. And if there is some way, some outlet or some, you know, even we've we've had people in to talk about mindfulness, uh, which is, can really be helpful to attorneys. Even things like looking at what's being served in the cafeteria and are there healthy options so people can be eating well. There, there's a lot around well-being, and a lot of it is conversations, and a lot of it is, you know, breaking down that idea of work hard, play hard, or it's, you know, you're not, this job is so demanding, you're expected to do all these things, but you're not supposed to suffer any emotional or physical consequences, and that's crazy, you know, and so to say that work hard, play hard is not maybe the, the rule to live by, but let's try to find some better balance. And so we do, you know, a better job and a smarter job and, and have some peace in our own minds. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast. <laughs>